greetings, Sotens, and those who are just beginning to listen to our podcast. Welcome and salutations. My name is Sarah Kensler. And I'm Jason McKenzie, and we are reporting to you live from St. Paul, Minnesota. It is a uh, fair 32 degrees. That's right, everybody, right on freezing point. So make sure you bundle up for that, ooh, chilly pre-Thanksgiving weather. <laughs> Just kidding. That's not what we do here. Why Why aren't you, why aren't you doing this professionally? <laughs> we're going to... Um... We're going to talk about some some art stuff. We're going to talk about some some critical topics. Yep. Uh, and I think you talked to an artist. I may have. Uh, it's one of my favorite pastimes. <laughs> Seems like something you would do. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, I did. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Madam. <laughs> don't use that kind of language with me. <laughs> Oh, uh, goodness. This um, whole thing is off the rails. Remember when we used to be more professional in this podcast? But I now... don't. I don't remember that at all. Or, you know what? We never were. I just used to edit out um, us being too ridiculous. I do. And now we're almost a year and a half in. And I have, I am just, you know, editing this thing with abandon. Reckless. Recklessness. And you know who makes art? Is it artists? Uh, Yeah. Also, or or more specifically, or a subcategory of artists, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, women artists. Women artists, yes. I'm, I'm familiar with this concept. Yes. Okay, yeah. great, 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 great. Mm-hmm. So you're there. I'm there. I'm with you. Perfect. I got it. So uh, did you hear this uh, Did you hear this rumor, the the word on the street? Did you hear what uh, people are saying? I mean, have I, have I heard about this? Have I seen this? Yep. Yeah. The thing about the the Baltimore Museum, yeah, their uh, acquisition practices are going to change for twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. That's uh, what they're saying. They're gonna acquire only works by women, women, and female identifying people. Nailed it. Uh, welcome to the Coral Edition of. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> One day we're gonna break out into song and sing the whole podcast. Yeah, you know, like Scrubs, Grey's Anatomy. They all had like that one musical episode. Well, this one is not ours. But now that I have that idea, <laughs> you know it's coming. It's coming. Uh, but back to the serious and and really great topic at hand that mm-hmm. the Baltimore Museum of Art will acquire. Only works by female identifying artists in the year 2020, which is coming up in just a little over a month and a half. So that's great. It is nigh. It is nigh. Actually, by the time this comes out, it'll be even shorter than that amount of time. I thought you were going to say even nigher. (laughs) (laughs) Even more nigh. It'll be increasingly nigh. Like Bill. Nigh, the science. Oh. (laughs) What? Okay, but seriously, we do want to give give major props uh, to this museum and discuss things seriously. We, we just can't. Uh, but truly, um, the Baltimore Museum of Art is uh, having a new vision for 2020. Just to give you a little background, um, at the BMA, only 4% of the 95,000 artworks in their permanent collection were created by women. Wah wah. Wah wah. Which makes the decision practical and political. Um, they're trying to, you know, correct some blind spots that the institution has had in the past. <laughs> Just to say 
uh, very, very lightly. Um, and this is uh, slightly timely because it is coming up on the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave some women. Some women. Some women the right to vote. Uh, and so they want to promote the work of marginalized female artists, which I don't know if that just means all female artists because they're all marginalized or like, you know, like some people who have intersecting identities as well. To be honest, I'd be happy if they just give this a, a really good shot. Like it's a really good start. And the, the Baltimore Museum of Art falls into the category of an encyclopedic museum. So it is surprising, but not, that out of all the cultures, all of the places in the world that they have collected art, that only a small portion of those works were created by women. Um, but, but you know, the, the BMA falls into that category of like really early 20th century, like formed by rich white dudes. Yep. Uh, you know, ionic columns in the front entrance museum. To what you're saying, yes, that is very symptomatic of art museums all over the country and the West and beyond. Uh, we are gesturing to the West and beyond widely right now, um, although you can't see it. And I really wonder how that compares to our own Minneapolis Institute of Art. It would be very interesting uh, if someone took a study like this to, to tell us our local museums break down. I'm sure it would be somewhat similar. I bet it would. Although I know that there has been, um, not a, not an initiative, but there just seems to be more of a focus on, um, marginalized artists in general, whether it be, um, marginalized by gender, marginalized by culture, um, that anything like that, um, mm. basically trying to break through the barriers of a practice of acquisition and exhibition that has been pervasive in the type of encyclopedic art institution, um, for, you know, about a hundred years or more, literally. Yes. Um, they, this article that we are largely sourcing from on hyperallergic uh, does include some statistic that uh, if you look at the permanent collections of the 18 most prominent art museums in the United States, it is found that out of over about 10,000 artists, 87% are male, 85% are white. So... Are we shocked? No, we're not we're shocked. shocked. Not we're shocked. shocked by that. No, no one, we have said this many a time. No one's shocked by this. Yeah. Um... Oh, and according to Hyperallergic, only about 30% of artists represented by commercial galleries in the U.S. Uh, are women. There's a great quote by the museum's director uh, who said, This is how you raise awareness and shift the identity of an institution. You don't just purchase one painting by a female artist of color and hang it on a wall next to a painting by Mark Rothko. To rectify centuries of imbalance, you have to do something radical. Do more radical things. Keep the, it going. This is indeed radical. I mean, this this type of initiative has to go past so many different people, including a board, um, committees, uh, various curators, all sorts of... I mean, it's just... 
to say it's radical is is almost an understatement like it's it's huge it it really is going to change the culture of that institution forever yeah it just makes me sad that it is radical you know like oh including me like women artists uh it just you know it just makes my heart a little sad yes 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 i know let us let us not bemoan that that it is radical and let us celebrate that it is in fact happening well said Additionally, the museum is going to be holding uh, programming around the same topic. So uh, 22 of its exhibitions, um, which will be held in 2020, are going to have a, quote, female-centric focus. Um, And 19 of those 22 will have only women artists in the entire exhibition. So that's a fun thing. I want to see those. Take me to that. A little uh, fun numbers game is that the museum is expecting to spend up to $2 million next year purchasing the work of female artists. And hopefully this is just, you know, the first of many years of collecting female artists and spending a lot of money on them. I hope, personally, and I guess I would expect, because they are an encyclopedic museum, that they are collecting women artists encyclopedically as we have said many a time on this podcast the women artists have been there the whole time people saying oh women weren't practicing at this time Uh, they were they totes were you guys they they, we've always been there all the time yeah the whole time the whole time were they given exposure education the same opportunities no no So, now is the time. Collect women from yonder year all the way through tomorrow. Yeah. The infinite tomorrow. And do it all of the time. Every museum, do this now. Do it yesterday. The infinite yesterday. Alright, so there's something that we really need to tell you guys about, so just, you know, maybe maybe sit down for this one. What we need to break to you is that we have a critical topic to talk about, and um, I don't know if you're expecting this. Uh, how critical is this topic? Like, on a scale of one to super critical? Um, like, nuclear. nuclear? Whoa, okay. So is like, it nuclear critical? No. 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 Is it um, the station's going to blow critical? No. No? Is our work drive intact? Uh, it's intact. So we're, we're all good. So very low on the critical scale when you put it like that. Uh, so what we are about to talk about, um, as soon as Sarah gets over her outer space fantasy. Um, it's not a fantasy. It's a fandom. That earlier this year, the Portland Art Museum had an interesting situation where it laid off some people and kind of reconfigured some departments to be one department. And yes, I know that this just happens sometimes when there's budgety things involved and reconfigure things involved. I get it. But this was very peculiar, I think, or particular. And so we would like to tell you about it. So here's, a, here's the DL, everybody. Sarah and I have both worked in visitor services departments in museums. I have worked in, in three. Yeah, I've worked in just the one. But she has more years and has done more different uh, roles within the one. 
than I have with my three combined. This is this is true. Indeed. So mm-hmm. we we come from that knowledge base. And so the Portland Museum has combined security and front desk functions, which is interesting because as a front desk functioner, I wonder how that would work, mm. to be quite honest. And they are tasked with giving, quote, high levels of customer service, which I suppose is a, a, a common descriptor or what any I would know, say so. customer yes. service role would, would have expectations of. Yeah. These people are expected to, quote, proactively interact with museum visitors to provide exceptional customer service. This comes from a reduction in staff. So, assumedly, they have reduced uh, the number of customer service and security people and then combined them into one. So there are less people all around and then shifted the duties of those who remained into encompassing two jobs. This is uh, mostly due from the museum is getting less money from local foundations like the Regional Arts and Culture Council, um, which funnels public and private funds to artists and art organizations. So they have shifted their priorities to funding smaller institutions and, you know, obviously that leaves less for larger institutions. So the museum's funding has changed and they've had to make some other arrangements. So this is this was a reactionary policy. In, it looks like it. Yes, indeed, indeed. Which uh, I think it's great to, uh, you know, poise your funding towards smaller organizations that don't have the, the donor base, the donor levels, the like, you know, sponsorships that a large museum does. And uh, the Arts Council plans to, quote, embrace a more equitable funding model using progressive distribution. Um, so, like, I'm all about that, personally. Um, also, at the beginning of this year, Oregon had a new minimum uh, wage requirement. Uh, the museum said that they are continuing to invest in staff and make sure that their wages are above the minimum requirements for the city. Um, as of the beginning of this year, the minimum wage is twelve fifty an hour, which is not a lot. So they are above the minimum wage, but we don't really know uh, how much. Here are some fun math things that we're about to drop on you right now. So the restructuring resulted in a net loss of 14 positions, which is around 6% of the museum's staff of 244. And they saved $450,000. For those of you following along at home, 450000 divided by 14 is around thirty-one, thirty-two thousand dollars. Yeah. So, so essentially, what we're trying to say is, it would appear that they let people go who were in the low to mid range of earners, low range of earners. Um, the other thing that we we think perhaps is that it it feels like the types of position that the types of positions that they let go, perhaps were not full time. Yeah. Um, and so that $450,000 does not include a savings in what the museum would have to pay for benefits because 
if they let go of people who were part-time, presumably they were not receiving benefits or they were not, their benefits were not being subsidized heavily by the museum. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Additionally, there's a part of this story that talks about what the top earners in the museum make. Indeed. Quick side note, it seems that they did uh, save $130,000 for pay equity adjustments, which makes me hopeful that they are paying the women as much as they are paying the men and making sure that the pay is equitable. Equitable. Did I say that right? Equitable. Equitable. No, I'm just kidding. Equitable. I can, <clears throat> um, yes. So it's uh, went on to say that the top three executive earners make a combined $751,326, which is about $250,000 per person. That's a lot. It's a lot of hundreds of thousands of dollars. For three people. Yeah. Each. Right. So um, a a few positions were vacant at the time and just remained unfilled. Um, They did cut positions in more than just the visitor services area. They let people go from other departments such as accounting, curatorial, events, marketing, and security. Which also, as people who have worked inside museums, tells us that the possibility of those being part-time people, assistants, uh, maybe like if there was a paid intern, I don't know, things Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, A crew for events. Well, okay, so the reason that this story caught our attention initially, because of the new visitor experience development where you are both visitor experience and security. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I will say Certainly that would not work for a large institution that has like between 80,000 and 90,000 works of art um, and was brought to fruition in the early 20th century. So it wouldn't work for the BMA, wouldn't for, work for MIA, wouldn't work for Philadelphia, wouldn't work for Detroit, wouldn't work for Cleveland, etc. But it would work for the Met. Straight up joking there. Oh, you were wearing your serious face and I couldn't tell. Oh, wow. Um, My deadpan game is on. It's uh, it's pretty good. I don't know what's going on with you, Mackenzie. Um, yeah, no, it, it would not work for the Met either. I mean, essentially, the larger the museum is, the more specialized positions you actually need to fill. In a smaller museum, perhaps this might actually work. Uh, Mia has started an initiative with their guards where the guards become a little bit more knowledgeable about specific pieces so that they can fulfill a visitor experience type interaction while also operating in security. However, they do get extra training. It's it's seen as a professional development opportunity. And I believe they get a small pay bump as well. So oh. it's like, it's it's more of an opportunity and less like something that is thrust upon them because of layoffs. Right. I mean, I could see how getting more hours, like getting paid to train, would be great. However, it does seem like if you didn't sign up for that job, maybe you wouldn't want that job. Yeah. But you are just an artist that needs to make ends meet, and this is the job that you have. So, ta-da. And, like, 
I mean, guards, you know, like if someone steals a painting or like assaults another visitor or something, they're the ones that like have to respond to that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's where like the, the other training comes in and things like that. They respond to medical emergencies. Yeah, that's just like another, it's just a whole nother thing. It's a whole other layer of responsibility for perhaps pay that doesn't reflect that level of responsibility. Right. Yeah. So that's, I suppose that's a concern. Really, it's it's dependent upon the institution whether or not combining those two visitor experience and security positions into one would work or not. But the concern is also that, that there is the potential there for, for low pay for an increased amount of work. Right. And also... I don't think that this is affecting, uh, you know, obviously they, they, some people were let go in other departments, but I don't think this is affecting anybody higher up than entry level. No, I, that's not the sense I got either. The saving distribution is, is coming from the bottom and it, it seems like the top earners could have, could have taken a pay cut to keep some, you know, leave some people their jobs, but yeah. you know, it's we're, we're just going to follow this one closely. See if there's any follow-up, see if anybody has any anything to say from the inside and and tell us your opinions. Do you think this is good? Would you do you feel positively about this move? Would you want that to be the case where you work? Do you work in an art museum? What do you think about it? Tell us these things, please. Tell us about all of these things from your perspective. We want to hear from you. Please do it. Yep. Do it now. Guess what, everybody? I have an interview to share with you. Do you remember from our last episode where myself and Therese Yacovino interviewed Donnie Gettinger about his show at the Truck Stop Gallery? Of course you do, because you listen to all of our episodes and, in fact, love the interviews that I do. So, boy, do I have a surprise for you. I interviewed Donnie again. Uh, mostly because I wanted to get a better sense of his overall practice and and give him a little bit more focus. So this interview was conducted at the Truck Stop Gallery. You will hear a sound difference about halfway through because there was a meditation class that was arriving at the Truck Stop Gallery and we had to move from the gallery to my car. True story. Nothing but the finest quality here on SOTA. I I would like to actually rephrase that and say, nothing will stop me Mm. from getting my interview. I'm here today with Donnie Gettinger. Donnie is an artist, fabricator, builder of things out of plywood and tape. Yeah. Yeah? Or maybe assembler. Assembler. Living and working in the Twin Cities? Yep. Donnie, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Inside of uh, the Truck Stop Gallery on Nicollet Island. Let's start at the beginning. Why don't you go ahead and talk about your background and how you developed your practice? So, I grew up in Illinois, and it wasn't the biggest town, but it also had a university there, so it wasn't quite the the middle of the cornfield, but it was it felt a lot like that. <laughs> so I grew up in kind of a boring place besides for having the university. It was just cornfields and not much else. So there's a lot of time to get into trouble and just come up with really dumb things to do to pass the time. And 
I think I wouldn't say that, but I think it does play into my work a little bit now and how I get curious and get bored and also like how I can maintain a series for only so long and then get bored with it and kind of jump to something different. So I think that that does play into my work a little bit. Uh, I ended up going to school. I did my undergrad in at that same university. It was Western Illinois University. And I went there and I really, really didn't want to be an artist. So my main reason for not wanting to be an artist is both my parents were. My dad was, uh, he taught that university. And then my mother taught high school art and pretty much every grade that I was in, she was the art teacher for. And she just kept following <laughs> me around. And so I was just kind of like, ah, oh, my parents do this, but I really don't want to be my parents. And I tried to take a different direction, but I took, I think I took one printmaking class. I think it was lithography too, where it was like kind of a weird science based one. And as soon as I took that, like it, I couldn't turn back or whatever. And I just kept taking them and kept taking more printmaking classes. And so that eventually was what I majored in was printmaking and another, like a minor focus in sculpture. And so I kind of learned the two mediums in tandem, but it was kind of a more traditional school. So I was learning lithography, but I was in intaglio and not so much uh, woodcuts or graphic design work. It was figuring out the chemistry on like litho stones and then also like mixing inks and viscosities and all that stuff. So it was like, there's kind of this science side of it that I really liked. Well, the same thing in sculpture, like uh, I was really interested in mold making and then casting. What's more important to you, the creation of the work or the final work? I think they kind of go hand in hand. It's still a really important part of my practice is to have my hands be active and make basically all of the piece. Um, for time and if something's cheap enough and outsourcing something to be CNC is like within the realm of to be what CNC like to be cut out on a router table oh so sure using a, a computer program like Adobe uh, Illustrator to draw up something and then have the parts kind of cut out mm -hmm. at one point I needed an arcade machine for a piece and I couldn't find the arcade machine they wanted to find kind of a used one and just gut it and then repurpose it but it was easier to actually find the cut files online <laughs> like that somebody had come up with like for the game I was looking for too. It was like Donkey Kong or something like that. But like the exact cut file was like already drafted up by somebody. So I just took that and bought plywood and had somebody else see and see it and then put it together. But it didn't feel like I was, because I would have been salvaging that part anyway. It didn't seem like it was subtracting from the making process to go out and have that done by somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe if I were to lean to one side, I'd say the making process is more rewarding for me because I'm learning as I'm going. And I'm figuring most of the time I'm doing something new for each piece that I'm not quite familiar with. And that, that's probably why my work from undergrad looks nothing like my stuff from grad school. And then my grad school stuff looks nothing like the stuff I'm making now. Besides for like using a car in a piece, that was like the one thing that's linked from grad school. but. I was messing with projections and more figuring out how to use just video editing software and what I wanted videos to look like in grad school. And now it's more of how to take those videos and put them inside of containers. And that's what's present in the work that's at Truck Stop right now. But also work prior to it that I was kind of messing with was how to get small monitors and 
still frames because I thought that was a really awkward and uncanny place for video to live. <laughs> why, why were you creating the pieces in Truck Stop to be containers within containers within containers? My, uh, my original thought on it was I wanted to have something that was like a real static object. So I thought of like the matted frame, basically like the, it goes back to printmaking a little bit, but like the idea of having a frame and then your mat board and then your art piece inside of that. And so for me, the slate was, although a much different, weirder material. And I wanted to point out that weird part of it too, by using slate instead of, I could have used paper. Or That's true. You could have used stuff. glass if you wanted to. Yeah. But slate became the, like, not a necessity. I got this chalkboards out of a, off an auction. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I got these. But I was looking for that right material at that time. And I think just subconsciously, I was like, this is it. And then bought it without thinking about it and then got it. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. Because it was something that was not what it's usually used for. And then also very difficult to actually do the thing I wanted to do with it. So I had to build a jig to cut basically holes into the corners and then wet saw into those cut holes to cut out the piece so it was kind of a, a tricky process and it took me a minute to figure out how to do it all and how to do them straight and make them clean and not messy <laughs> but the idea it started was just a printed like a frame with a mat and then what kind of contraptions can I put in there there with that same idea formally like to get that same look um, but then things that don't really belong in there like a video that keeps moving and then a tape loop that is really weird in that spot too and I don't know and then also not very archival like whereas mats like a matted piece that has a frame and everything you expect it's kind of like oh that's good to go but when you start throwing things like a tape loop or a TV set in there like <laughs> like they, they're not going to exist forever so were in that you, state. <laughs> were you thinking about the difficulty of moving and, and keeping this work. piece yeah. when you were making it? Yeah, but I also was like, I was happy about it, like not being able to live that kind of life or whatever. It wouldn't be something that would be, although one is a commission, but that I made a bunch of tape loops to replace. So in theory, it can break up to like, I think there's about 20 tape loops and then I had to make more of them or whatever, but... <laughs> But besides for that, then it's a TV that will burn out eventually. Maybe a little, the Raspberry Pi computer that loops the video will blow up or whatever happens to them eventually. <laughs> you don't like the idea of your work living like in perpetuity? Is, or being archival? Or... Being archival. Is there something about that that you don't, you don't work for? I think there's the work you make to support the work and then the work that you make that you want to make. And the work that I want to make I don't really think about it being archival because once I'm dead, I don't really care if it's still around. I don't, <laughs> I'd rather see people, I, I mostly like to exhibit work where people can see it and then I get to see what they, how they react to it or like how they respond to it. Sometimes with more interactive pieces than necessarily what's up at truck stop, but like uh, building something for Can Can Wonderland, that was a piece that I had in grad school where it was turning a car into a karaoke machine and it was kind of a pop-up show and it was a lot of fun but then that business came along and started kind of going making attractions that were in that direction so I pitched that idea and they eventually said like oh yeah that's cool and so I built it it's it's a should be wrapped up in like a month or so hopefully 
but it'll be karaoke again, but like with much more high end kind of stuff inside of it. It'll function a lot better. Wait, wait. <laughs> so you mean like somebody will be able to to sit in the car and do karaoke? Yeah. So you'll it'll basically it's like a jukebox, like the Touch Tunes jukebox. On the side of the wall, you go up and you select your songs, pay for them. Then you get inside the car, and the front windshield's frosted over with a rear projection paint. And then there's a projector outside of the car that washes the lyrics on top of the windshield. And then the audio plays through the car speakers. And then you're you're seeing karaoke like inside the car with the lyrics on the screen or on the front windshield. So like what did something like that where it's it's completely interactive and immersive. I'm having a hard time rectifying the guy that made that with the same guy who made who you know made pieces for truck stop that you essentially just you don't really interact with you just kind of watch mm -hmm. which do you prefer i think the interactive work even just having audio that plays with the i don't know i guess it's not as interactive definitely not immersive <laughs> no but to have an audio component where people have to listen to it and then there's a little video it's like an easter egg where if you go up next to the video camera part you can it's really disorienting, but like a person can stand there and then they're they're projected on that screen as well in the the camera feed. So then they end up being like a part of the piece in a weird way, but they're also oriented in a weird way. So when you're looking at it, it really kind of is jarring if you're the person who's like standing there. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like very limited interactive qualities to them that weren't necessarily important to the pieces, but that stuff, like, I think it's just important enough to me that without thinking about it, they just kind of always end up in the work. The interactive pieces, you mean? Yeah, or just, like, these little goofy interactive qualities to something that necessarily wasn't, I didn't set out to make an interactive piece. Whereas, like, the opposite of the spectrum would be that karaoke piece that's at Can Can. Is it more valuable to you or more satisfying to you to create a piece that's more interactive? Or do you, could you go either way? I think... But I, it goes into a little bit of the what I do for a living is like one job that I work is uh, making public art. So being a fabricator and building big steel sculptures that light up. They get messed with a lot, <laughs> but they're yeah. meant for that. Mm -hmm. But building that kind of stuff and then I think doing that for work, it's really satisfying to see somebody like walk through those or... I don't know it's 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 not my work necessarily so if somebody decides to like skateboard off of something that's funny to me <laughs> it doesn't really hurt my feelings that much although I did like put a bunch of hours into it yeah but it's still like it's fun to see people do like interact with sculptures and artwork so I think for me since otherwise the things just go and live in somebody's home I think that's still nice but it's just not the way that I want to that's not the kind of work I want to make, is have something that hangs on a wall and kind of goes well with somebody's decor. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I don't think that is. No. But I think that uh, it just doesn't work for me. All right. Uh, what's coming up next for you? So I mentioned a little bit beforehand, but there's a, got a piece coming up that'll be permanently installed at Can Can Wonderland. Uh, it'll be karaoke. It's pretty cool. It's got a 1976... Dijon mustard colored AMC pacer that you can sit in. So it's kind of fun just to go and sit in the car, even if you're not singing. <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting thing. But then this winter, um, this last show got me into making.
music a little bit or like at least making a backing soundtrack kind of thing to go with my video and so I've been getting into music a little bit more there's something I did when I was a kid but so now it's coming back and I'm actually using some of those skills that when I was a bored kid in the Midwest like just wasting my or I guess it was it was positive but like learning how to play all these instruments and read music and stuff now it's all mm -hmm. coming back and being useful with these long winters like it's like the perfect thing to like do inside so I've had this project in mind even back in Indiana like probably six years ago when I was going to grad school but I just didn't have the time to do it but uh now I kind of and also this city is full of like it's got a great music scene and lots of approachable musicians which is pretty cool yeah. um and so the idea like to commission some music but to start off with just a few things that I make um as kind of demos or like examples and then pass them along to these other artists but the underlying idea would be using misconnection ads like from the twin cities and having that be like the basis for a song and have the artist respond to those misconnections and i just started compiling them too i did the same thing in indiana i just had this like massive running list of all these ones i thought were really interesting but kind of making these like love songs or i don't know just like kind of sad I don't know, they're not all sad but like just a response to these people who have anonymously put out their feelings like to this one place in the internet that you can still be anonymous or whatever i think there's something really interesting about the craigslist misconnections for that so i've been wanting to do this for a while so i think that this winter i'll hunker down and like actually get some of my own things recorded in it and then try to reach out to other artists to fill it out so then we kind of get a mixtape that's this big portrait of Minas like the Twin Cities like misconnections vis-a-vis -vis <laughs> Craigslist misconnections yeah. that's actually pretty brilliant <laughs> if the people wanted to see your work what online areas would they visit uh, I have a website it's just www.dianegettinger.com I got Instagram too. Facebook's not so good, but <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know what the Instagram handle is. It's probably like D Gettinger or something. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, we'll we'll have it linked in the show notes. It'll be it'll be good. Uh, Donnie, thank you so much for allowing me to pick your brain about your artistic philosophies. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> and explaining your pieces to me, and I really appreciate you and your work. Thank you. joining us soda listeners you can find our show notes and other information about us on our website at sodapodcast.blog please email us with any feedback or to alert us of any arts events coming up at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com we're also on instagram and facebook at stateoftheartspod or search for soda podcast you can find episodes of state of the arts on itunes google play stitcher and soundcloud Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. We have a Patreon. There's a donation tab on our website. Donating to the Patreon will help us cover the costs of producing the podcast. And as always, our music is provided by The Von Tramps. That works on two accounts. I waggled my fingers at you. Digital, digital, get down. Oh, just you and me.
We can get together naturally, or we can get together on a digital screen. Digital, 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 get down. Wow. Get down. Yep. I have not heard oh, that yeah. song in a very long time. Oh, yeah. Digital, digital, get down. Oh. Just you and me. Just you and me. That's all I know. That's fine. Okay. Um, that actually was pretty great. That's really good. Nice. Thank you. Um, cool. I've got it stuck in my head. Naturally, or we can get together on a digital screen. screen.